Okay, this is 100% how we're starting the episode. You know, he's the first president from the rock and roll generation. <laughs> you can understand why when Obama showed up, you know, he was such a breath of fresh yeah, air. Like, this, sucks. Th- this was the actual coolest thing <laughs> yeah, that yeah, politics yeah. had seen until then. <laughs> uh, well, so good. welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, happy new year, guys. Did you have a good holidays? Not bad. Yeah, pretty pretty restful, kind of low-key for me. What about you? It was all right. I went to Thunder Bay, Ontario, where I went dog sledding. Uh-huh. I just want to enter that into the record. If That's going to sound so like bucolically Canadian to our American listeners. You know, if you do a thing like dog sledding, which is an awful experience you know it's not an awful experience it's like it's nice you get to hang out with the dogs and that's nice and it's beautiful and it's what's good, awful about it's it? good exercise well it's cold my heart was about to explode despite the minus 20 degree weather it's not cold because you're so exhausted and you're so overheated dog sledding it's really hard work they don't tell you this the dogs don't do all the work <laughs> you also have to be like if you're going up a hill you have to help the dogs out you have big boots on, and a big coat, and big snow pants, and you're carrying so much extra weight, and you're running, and it's very exhausting. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you survived. Love uh, to tell the tale. But I was in Thunder Bay, Ontario, which I'd never been to before, and which is uh, very it's northerly for American listeners who don't know. Um, it's very spread and these are, out. These are Canadian distances, so this is like really north. It's very spread out, and it's very kind of. I find it quite an alienating city. Mm-hmm. You know, apologies to our Thunder Bay listeners. I'm sure it's lovely. When we you probably get, have some, to be honest. I'm sure it's wonderful when you get a better <laughs> sense of the city. We probably have some. And they thought we finally made Thunder Bay. Finally made Michael and us, and now they're bashing it. You know, next time, Shame I, on you. next time I go, if I ever go back, you should come with me, and we should do a live event. <laughs> Let's make it happen. I'm sure they need something to do up there. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Luke and I. Before we started recording this episode, as we always do, we watched some youtube videos featuring our guy wet movie one if you don't know about wet movie one well you you, you're probably not a patreon subscriber because true michael and us fans will have been exposed to this particularly dumb part of our cosmology that we've sort of inflicted on everybody there was one moment in one of the videos that i was really beguiled by and it's it's no different than any video that wet movie does he's a vlogger you have to understand and he goes to you know, a lot of big box stores and stuff. And he likes to buy stuff. He was at a, a drugstore or something, and he was looking through, you know, just the the standard bin of, of DVDs and Blu-rays. They're just at just any... Just the detritus of late capitalism, just, just sitting in the yeah. bins. Uh, you know, DVDs Bargain of like... Bargain prices. <laughs> just stuff that was like inventory liquidation stuff by the checkout aisle. And of course, he didn't find anything he wanted there. And I don't know, there was just something looking at that bin of DVDs that I found just so kind of powerful. It's like, think of when you buy something from there, what you're doing is just need anything to sort of take your mind off the agony of life. You know, it's just like my childhood visits to Blockbuster. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter what it is. You just pick up an Ice Age sequel and then (laughs) you go home and you put it on and you watch it. And then for 90 minutes, you're distracted from... The, the misery of your of your terrible life and halfway through uh death shows up and challenges you to a game of chess this made me think of my trip on the airplane to thunder bay because like <laughs> like imagine that life is an airplane and the destination is <laughs> is death you forgot new year folks <laughs> and you've forgotten to bring a book on the airplane 
or anything or or you've forgotten to bring like a game boy i don't know what do people use on airplanes <laughs> you've forgotten to bring your ipod uh-huh. i love game boy 90s kid over here and your game boy or your book that's symbolic of your interests and hobbies mm-hmm. and if you don't have a book or in other words you don't have interests or hobbies <laughs> what do you do all you have to do is look at the little animated screen that shows where the plane is over the Atlantic Ocean. And you right, look, which you definitely fly <laughs> over on the way to Thunder Bay. <laughs> I, maybe I'm mixing my metaphors here. And you look at that and it's like, well, well, this is a bit of a distraction on the way to my destination. <laughs> to death, which is Thunder Bay. <laughs> which is Thunder Bay or, or, I don't know, London or wherever you're going. Uh-huh. Um, and that's what getting one of those movies from the checkout aisle bin is it's it's a distraction on the way to death oh well i guess i did a lot of distracting myself over the over the new year's uh, or the holidays then well speaking of death approaching you're gonna be <laughs> yeah, you're gonna be 30 in two days uh, oh god yeah that? i don't like it well, uh, I think everyone in Mike Linus Nation should try to cheer Will up by sending him, uh, I don't know, wholesome positive reinforcement or whatever whatever you do to uh, somebody who's turning 30 and or for somebody who's turning 30 and is a little nervous about it. I'm turning 30 soon myself. Thanks. January 5th is the big day. I mean, I remember when I turned 20 and it doesn't feel all that long ago. And then I think that same stretch of time is is the exact same amount of time to when I turn 40. Just think about how wise and erudite, I mean, you already are, but will be at 40. Yeah, and especially compared to what I was at 20, a rather callow youth. (laughs) Think about how eloquently you'll be able to speak about the wet movie vlogging universe 10 years from now. Oh, man. (laughs) So much will have happened in both wet movies universe and mine (laughs) by that point. Just whole new vistas of discussion will will have been opened up. Uh, so it's not all bad. I'm not happy about losing my Wonderkind status. <laughs> you know, being the, the cool 28-year-old with two podcasts. <laughs> I have to leave that behind. Back when I met Will, that very much was his kind of, his thing. I mean, that's how I that's how I thought of you. As a Wonderkind? Well, I mean, because you, I guess, must have walked into the varsity uh, a few months earlier than me. You were practic. Well, I think you already had the kind of. I was there a year before you were actually. Yeah. Really, it was that yeah. long. Yeah. Okay, because you were already known as the film critic. This was not a masthead position. It was just kind of an honorific. Well, was was given. They gave me that because they had too many other people. They had to let be associate arts editor before me. So so they let me be <laughs> film critic. But I was very impressed by this, and I think you 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 kind of were seen as like a rising star until my own meteoric rise displaced, <laughs> displaced you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That really bothers me now, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, we're canceling the podcast. I've never helped run a presidential campaign before. Neither have we. From Mike Nichols, director of The Birdcage, comes the story of a man. I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. Who said yes to destiny. I'm going to win this thing. But couldn't say no. Apple fritter. Honey, please, popcorn. To anything else. Governor Jack Stanton seduced me. No, it is not true. Oh, I'm sorry. We've had some tough times in our marriage, but we've worked them out. Our Jackie's done some pretty stupid things in his life, and he's got enemies. Universal Pictures presents John Travolta. What's he governor of again? Emma Thompson. Jack Stanton could also be a great man if he weren't such a pompous, disorganized, slime-sucking, psychotic. Get me out! You, you just threw the phone out the window. 
primary colors. Does this guy have a chance in hell? No. Here's the surprising thing. Primary colors would seem just about as good, as tough, and as smart if there had never been a president named Bill Clinton. Of course, the movie resonates with the parallels of the lives of Bill and Hillary Clinton, but it's a lot more than a disguised expose. It's a superb film, funny, insightful, and very wise about the realities of political life. Much of the movie's ethical content revolves not around sex, but about how a primary campaign should handle damaging information it turns up about its opponent. In the way Primary Colors handles this issue, it shows more insight and more maturity than all but a handful of recent mainstream movies. This is a grown-up film about real issues in the real world. Will Primary Colors hurt or help the Clinton presidency? To some degree, neither. It's a treatment of matters that the electorate has already made up its mind about. The film has certainly not in any sense softened its portrayal of its Clinton-esque hero. Those rumors are exposed by its almost brutal candor. But you know, in a strange way, Primary Colors might actually work to help Clinton. While a lesser film would have felt compelled to supply an answer, this one knows that the fascination is in the complexity, in the strong and weak qualities at war with each other. The secret of what makes Jack Stanton, the Clinton surrogate of this film, tick is as unanswerable as the meaning of Citizen Kane's rosebud, and the resemblance doesn't stop there. Of course, that's what I would say if I were a Pulitzer Prize-winning critic, the late Roger Ebert. Deep, deep stuff right there, folks. <laughs> Reviewing Mike Nichols' 1998 film, Primary Colors. A, a virtuosic performance of middle-brow film criticism right there. So do you agree with uh, St. Ebert on this matter? <laughs> You know, it's too bad because I do have a, a soft, a real soft spot for Roger Ebert. Um, we all, yeah, sure, we all do. And I mean, you know, we we watched this film, and I mean, I think we, I mean, I it's such a broken record saying this, but you know, I I think we knew it was going to be bad, but I, I didn't think we knew it was going to be this bad. I think it was is is made infinitely worse by having you know a pretty reputable, albeit you know very mainstream film critic write such a breathless review. This was back in 1998 when it when it came out. So I didn't like this movie. I mean, we've watched a lot worse than this. This is, you know, just just so middle of the road. Although like a know. movie a movie that I think rivals Man of the Year in its sheer norm oh, normitude. Okay. Man of the Year is less competent than this but yeah you're right it's a very normy kind the, the, of rich in, democrat movie yeah in terms of just the the sensibilities that it's conveying yeah so this movie primary colors is a 1998 american comedy drama film directed by mike i'm reading the wikipedia right now uh, <laughs> no it, it was based on a novel uh, called primary colors a novel of politics which was a romana clef about the bill clinton presidential campaign which was published anonymously can you believe that but later it was revealed yeah its candor was too brutal it was later revealed that the author was in fact the journalist joe klein who covered the campaign and i mean i haven't read the book watching the movie i think why be anonymous like what what is there in here to destroy your career <laughs> yeah he went like full deep throat with this extremely middle of the road take on on the clinton candidacy and uh the screenplay written by mike nichols old comedy partner elaine may uh who i should point out is a great filmmaker well and mike nichols did make the graduate i remember when this movie came out it came out during the clinton presidency which was sort of a novelty and the clinton surrogate whose name is jack in the film but is is bill clinton yeah this is totally mirrors this bill isn't clinton. an abstract this isn't cinematic vague booking about you know the clinton candidacy this is uh emma thompson is playing hillary clinton you know there's uh, billy bob thornton is playing james carville 
the whitewater scandal is alluded to, except it's clear water. You know, right. it's, it's kind of that level of, of interpretive literalism. And the Bill Clinton character, whose name in the film is Jack Stanton, is played by John Travolta, who is playing the governor of Arkansas in this film. Right. Uh, John, that's the that's the brutal candor for which the film is known. John Travolta. I'll just I'll just say something nice. I think John Travolta pretty good in this movie. I mean, he works in this kind of a role because John Travolta. I mean, he's always struck me as when he's effective. I mean, he's also in some truly terrible. But yeah, I think he's bad more than he's good. But when he's good, maybe it's kind of a hackneyed comparison. But there's something of of sort of Nicolas Cage about it, where he's so affected that it, I mean, in this case, in doing that, playing Bill Clinton, who's a man who was really the consummate uh, bullshit artist and was widely kind of weirdly celebrated for his skill in you know dispensing bullshit. Um, you know, Travolta does that very well because he's kind of. Uh, He's able to play somebody doing authenticity as a as a shtick, mm-hmm. and then he and that works very well. So the opening scene of the movie, you see the Bill Clinton character shaking a couple of people's hands, and somebody is on voiceover talking about the savviness with which he shakes people's hands, and you know the way he deploys his left hand to touch their arm, and what that conveys and symbolizes. And this is the way the Democrats talk about Bill Clinton with this awe in his, uh, his, his political mastery and his phoniness. It's so you know? weird because it's it's implicitly recognizing that this is an artifice, and yet it's just celebrating that he's kind of he's doing he's doing the performativity well. There's a scene early on where, um, or you know, kind of maybe a quarter of the way into the film when the kind of the our surrogate character uh who's a young uh, idealistic black political consultant you know he kind of gets involved in the campaign and he's telling his uh his partner who she just she's just not into it because you know she's too much of a purist um <laughs> although i think we're supposed to find her sympathetic you know maybe maybe somewhat um but i mean she's kind of abandoned in the film pretty quickly mm. there's a scene early on where he's uh, he's talking to her and he's saying, I think this guy could be the real deal. You know, people back back in the past, they didn't, you know, they didn't bullshit, you know, you know, there was less bullshit and we don't, we don't have a Kennedy and, you know, maybe, maybe there was bullshit with Kennedy too. But the point is, you know, people believed in him, you know, and I, I think maybe this guy's bullshit, but, but, but I could, I could believe in, in him or whatever. Right. It's almost conscious, like his idealism, this is in the phase of the film where he's supposed to be an idealist. Right. And the idealism is like, you know, what if like we could just believe, what if we could just turn off the part of our brain that realizes this is bullshit? Think of how exciting that could be. It's funny. Cause like, you know, the conventional wisdom is that authenticity is one of the most effective qualities that a politician can have. And I don't think Bill Clinton has ever, even by the people who love him, has ever been considered somebody who's authentic. He's like comparing a classically trained actor like Laurence Olivier with Marlon Brando, right? Laurence Olivier, he gives a, a, a beautiful sort of perfected manufactured performance and you sort of marvel at the technical skill of it. And the thing that everyone likes about Bill Clinton is the way that he's able to portray someone who cares. And they like being kind of in on the fact that it's a fraud. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I basically agree with that. Although I think that um, there is a kind of authenticity that people perceive in the, the bullshit nature of it. And um, I want to turn to this great article by Nathaniel Friedman in, uh, in The Baffler. This is from, I think, the, the fall issue of The Baffler. Probably one of my favorite things that I read in mm-hmm. 2018. 
Um, and, you know, the, the thesis of the article is kind of that in the United States, there's this cult of authenticity, wherein authenticity is defined as actually being imperfect and kind of actively embracing the idea of being imperfect. And he kind of develops that by showing how the Democratic Party and liberalism generally have incorporated that into their own broader identity. And Bill Clinton is one of the first figures to really do that. And I think these few short paragraphs here are, this is the best description of Bill Clinton's appeal and the weird type of quote unquote authenticity that he represented for some people that I think I've ever read. This is in a section of the piece called Medium Cool. Objectively speaking, Bill Clinton was not a very good saxophone player. His 1992 rendition of Heartbreak Hotel on the Arsenal Hall show was on par with what you'd expect from a high school player who cared just enough to control his embouchure. But not only was this beside the point, it was the point. Unable to hide behind technique, Clinton could only emote. That's like exactly like a description of Tra Travolta's acting style, too. <laughs> There was the pretense of soul with zero substance behind it, and voters ate up the manifest aural and spiritual deficiency. Mastering the ins and outs of his instrument wasn't even on Clinton's radar. He just wanted to have a good time and let it all hang out. This wasn't politics recast as entertainment. Instead, Clinton channeled pop culture motifs of self-expression to shift the conversation. In place of accountability, we got not only celebrity, but an appeal to one of the underlying tenets of rock and roll, that being a cool cat, hence the shades, was of value in and of itself, insofar as it opened out onto a particular kind of integrity that was existential rather than moral. If this sounds like the most boomer thing ever, that's because it was. In the 90s, many boomers were trying to come to terms with their remarkably facile transition from 60s idealism to rapacious 80s capitalism. Viewed as any sort of coherent ideological or political program, this shift was impossible to justify. But the boomers whose go-to move is self-discovery masquerading as social change needed a rationalization. Bill Clinton, exotic as he may have been with his southern twang and working-class background, was an effective stand-in for a generation hungry for a way to interpret their political evolution as still relevant and as internally consistent. What he did or wanted to do, or eventually would do, mattered less than the perception of him. This was exactly what boomers needed for themselves, a deflection away from action that introduced a self-help-like mantra in its place. They may have pulled a sharp reversal and turned their backs collectively on their own radical past, but damn it, they were still brimming with the life force. Their lives bore little resemblance to what they once imagined, but deep down inside, they were dead certain that they were still the hippest thing going. For boomers, Bill Clinton's saxophone solo wasn't an exercise in nostalgia, it was a call to arms. You know, I've seen him do it a million times now, but I can't tell you how he does it, Henry. The right-handed part. I can tell you a whole lot about what he does with his left hand, though. He's a genius with it. You might put that left hand on your elbow. Or up on your bicep, like he's doing now. Very basic move. He's interested in you. He's honored to meet you. But if he gets any higher, if he gets on your shoulder like that, it's not as intimate. It means he'll share a laugh with you or a secret, a light secret, not a real one, but very flattering. If he doesn't know you that well, he wants to share something emotional with you, he'll lock in with a two-hander. Well, you'll see when he shakes hands with you, Henry. So this movie has its version of the Jennifer Flowers scandal, and we see the Bill and Hillary Clinton characters giving a version of that famous interview that they did. Uh, and we see Larry King doing a cameo as himself. Yeah. Lots of cameos. Larry King, Bill Maher. Uh, the disgraced journalist mm -hmm. Charlie Rose. Uh, but we see you know, various campaign apparatchiks showing up on these shows, giving the campaign spin for these scandals. And Kathy Bates plays a character who's kind of like 
the the master of dirty politics for this campaign, the one who's you know willing to get in the muck and do the, do the dirty work to, <laughs> that the more civilized people aren't willing to do. Kathy Bates, of course, having made a brief appearance in our excellent uh, Rat Race episode, now available on Patreon. Oh wow, two in a row. She's a <laughs> Michael and Us champion. Like the movie takes Bill Clinton's inauthenticity as its subject, and you know it depicts. In a, in a way that I'm not quite sure is, is as critical as it should be, CNN and the news media as being venues where these campaigns go as stenographers for the campaign spin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can imagine people go in his show and they deliver their spin and then there will be a segment afterwards where there was, well, that was obviously spin. Will this spin win the voters well, yeah they, they, we have a panel here to say will will this spin be plausible they then, they then have a meta conversation featuring 10 more apparatchiks about whether the bullshit you just heard was was the right kind of bullshit yeah and everyone knows it's fake yeah bill clinton knows it's fake you know it's fake and everything and this is why trump is able to say <laughs> fake news and he's successful because it is fake news. it is fake and if you, you're the viewer at home are encouraged to internalize the idea that politics is an artifice and you're supposed to kind of, you know, I guess vote on the basis of who does it the best. It's like that drill tweet about like, uh, I will vote for whichever candidate has the best ground game. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking funny. Uh, and, and you know what? You're smart because you're watching this now and you're an insider just like me, James Carville, who's on the panel. That's right. You get it. You're, you know, yeah. you, you... You're not like those unwashed mashes who are going to vote for, you know, wh- whichever way the yeah, wind yeah. blows. Yeah, you're, you're watching CNN and you get, you know, the, the dark arts, the game of politics. Yeah. So Trump on some idiot savant level understands this. Uh-huh. And he's right that it's fake news mm. i guess the film at its core is just not very sophisticated i mean this this very breathless ebert review i mean what is interesting about this film what is the brutal candor that's supposedly behind it it's like oh you know you think these people are gods but then you know we we, we see them behind the scenes and and turns out they're they're human beings and you know they, what they're willing to compromise some of their firmly <laughs> held ideals in pursuit uh, of office uh-huh. but <laughs> but then also like what are the firmly held ideals right like the film is very sad that uh you know these scandals distract from the the real issues which are uh, cutting the deficit and uh <laughs> getting spending under control and again it's almost it's presenting the Clinton candidacy as if, you know, this all would have been perfect without the scandals. The the, right. the underlying political vision was fine. So, you know, there's a scene where he uh, he's addressing some like dock workers or something and he's and he's very courageously telling them that, you know, their good union jobs are going to go and that's just the way of the it's world. It's globalization, baby. Yeah, you know? yeah. And the film just presents that, you know, so that's a very like third wayish type flourish it's the kind of thing you know bill clinton and tony blair became uh you know masters of saying is like the real courageous radical adult thing you can do you know is, is recycle to the extreme and uh just embrace the fact that globalization's happening neoliberalism's happening and we could just we let the markets rip and if you know if you're a if you're a dock worker and you're concerned about your unionized job you know, learn to code and vote Democrat. Okay, but that doesn't even matter because that scene is all about the Clinton character is recovering from a scandal. Yeah. Uh, the Jennifer Flowers scandal, basically. Right. The speech that he gives is all set up and showing about how quickly he's able to recover from this scandal and become the comeback kid. Yeah. So the actual issue of globalization and how it's going to affect these it's, union it's jobs. It's very secondary. It, it do- doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
And it, you know, it's so funny because uh, to return to one of my favorite hobby horses, you know, I think that the the Clinton presidency, the scandals that that afflicted it. Uh, were really scarring to a lot of liberals because they thought they were going to get the type of, you know, idyllic, you know, Camelot presidency they ended up getting under Obama. You know, they could ignore the genocide in Yemen and the rest of it because <laughs> there were there were no there were none of these kind of like, you know, domestic scandals in the White House. And they really they really felt very cheated that they didn't get that with Clinton, which is why Again, to return to one of my favorite hobby horses, you know, Aaron Sorkin wrote The West Wing because it's like, okay, we get it. The 90s were tough on you. What if what if there was a drama you could watch that's Clinton as your very dumb self thought it was going to be in like 1992? The Clinton presidency without any of the scandals. You know, for a movie that, as, as Ebert contends, has brutal candor about the political process, it really is... You know, like all the movies we watch, just in love with you know all the all the shit, all the political shit. You know, yeah, j- uh, j- very in a very sort of proto Sorkin esque way. It's yeah. so obsessed with like, wow, campaigns, what a concept. It's yeah, like, they've got just, their computers and their they've got their vote tallies. They're going to use their... the magic of technology to wage the the game of politics. And rest assured, folks, it is a game. And it loves the like political characters. You know yeah. them. That you know on on the front of the campaign you have your shiny Bills and Hillarys, Clintons. Um, but <laughs> but beneath them, the ones who are making the magic happen are the masters of the dark arts. Uh-huh. So, you know your your Kuvalises, your <laughs> your Stephanopoulos. Yeah, they're they're working, your, they're working the phones and they're uh, they're doing the dirty business. They're rolling uh-huh. up their sleeves and they're making it happen. And they're they're a little eccentric too. And they're loose cannons, but you. Know, Oh, gosh darn it they're brilliant yeah and, if you can if you can rein them in and just let them re- read the tea leaves the magic will follow and so you know there are two characters in particular there's the james carville character played by billy bob thornton who is a sexual harasser mm-hmm. and he shows which his the dick. Fi- which i feel like the film kind of treats as like whimsical and funny yeah there's a scene where he literally shows his penis to a woman at the campaign headquarters in front of everyone and it's and, just a passing joke and, basically. and she and she says to him I've never seen one that looked so old before. And right. so she gets she gets one up on him and then he ashamedly puts his dick away and it's okay. Wow. Uh, because he was humiliated. And then the other character along these lines is Kathy Bates, who plays a, uh, you know, I guess a strategist or a, an enforcer who is gay. And, you know, there, there are a number of scenes where we see her with her girlfriend at home and she, you know kisses the girlfriend it's the only person we see kiss in the movie basically and you know the girlfriend will be in you know her underwear behind her or something and this character is depicted as kind of abject like there's something kind of amoral about it the film is almost subtly implying that there's something gross about her yeah and and like in in a way that i i found kind of ugly i mean we're supposed to like her in the way that you like you know a character Uh you know when the film tries to redeem her at the end in a way that is kind of incoherent but she's also she's also supposed to be sort of abject Uh and her her queerness is used as part of that abjection you know um okay but i guess we should talk about the final twist well because so she (laughs) she ends up uh not being able to kind of go along with the amoral uh, the amorality of uh of the clinton characters she uncovers in her opposition research that one of travolta's opponents not only was a cocaine addict earlier in life but had a gay affair with his dealer mm-hmm. and she thinks well okay we found this and we'll we'll show it to bill and hillary mm-hmm. but uh, they'll never use it because this isn't relevant mm-hmm. okay 
It's like they would never do a thing like that. Yeah, of course they would look at this, you know, blockbuster information and Uh not do anything with Uh it. But nope, Bill and Hillary are going to leak it to the press. Uh And she is so upset by this. It's like this is a new low. You would would leak information that your opponent was a cocaine addict and gay. And it's it's great because the same character earlier in the movie, uh, we actually see her... Uh, threaten somebody with a gun like fly (laughs) somewhere and threaten to murder somebody in a way that's supposed to be like really funny um, but no, outing a political opponent. But but that's but yeah, go, going negative and is is like too far. I mean, I guess the implication is also that she's gay, so she doesn't like she that's finds true. it ugly. But but we have seen her threaten to murder somebody for having something like slightly damaging on. Uh, well, I mean, it's just it's so ridiculous because we've seen her do something like positively sociopathic. Yeah, and then the film at the end, she walks away and then she kills herself. Yes, which she kills is, herself. Which is really, I think, excessively dramatic. After she's told part. the Bill Clinton character, you know, why are we even getting into politics if we're doing this sort of dirty... Po- like, the whole point of getting into politics is to, to, to be clean and to be virtuous. And, and threaten to, people with yeah. guns. And, yeah. and this, if the movie has politics, it's this. It's there, there are characters in the movie who are presented as idealists, and their idealism is for that word that we hear so much of civility mm-hmm. uh it's not for those dock workers mm-hmm. or um or I don't know the, what, how about that scene in new york oh the scene the scene in new york where he's delivering a, a speech and he's just surrounded by braying mobs who each have a placard all of which have a separate political issue on it mm-hmm. you know abortion or gay rights gay rights whatever yeah. you know and the film is very much kind of uh being derogatory about you know all these uh all these interest groups. It's like, can't the man just deliver feel-good platitudes in peace without people making any demands? And none of those issues matter. So another another quibble I have with Ebert's, you know, uh, what, what, how did he put it? Uh, the brutal candor of the film right. is, I mean, this is a film which thinks of itself as, yeah, delivering brutal candor um, and as being, you know, you know, what if we showed you the side of the Clintons that you've never seen? But... You know, this is a film which entirely omits uh, the fact that one of the things Bill Clinton did to win a primary was travel back to Arkansas, where he was uh, the governor, and sign an execution order for a disabled black inmate, Ricky Ray Rector, Mm -hmm. something which, to his credit, Christopher Hitchens uh, made a lot of light of in the 90s, but which has largely been ignored. It's not something he's asked about a lot. Something that is, I mean, utterly despicable. I mean, it was it was uh, to show that he was, you know, a tough law and order candidate. He used the power of the state to murder somebody. This film also, uh, you know, it presents Bill Clinton's flaw as that he's he's unfaithful. But Bill Clinton in real life was accused of assault by multiple women. Mm-hmm. And the film doesn't, for all its supposedly brutal candor, it doesn't try to grapple with that. The film stops at kind of breathlessly being like, what if Bill Clinton wasn't perfect? And like, what does it mean? So you may be wondering about the audience surrogate character, the sort of, uh, I don't know, the George Stephanopoulos character of the film. Um, you know, how does he react to all this, all this disappointment by being around a candidate who leaks unflattering information to the press and maybe a cheater? Um, well, he decides that he just can't go along for the rest of the campaign. He leaves John Travolta in the dust. And, and, and we were able to predict 
The, that was the penultimate scene. We were able to predict almost exactly the final scene at that moment. Which was at Bill's inauguration, mm-hmm. and uh, he's dancing with with Hillary, and uh, he's shaking hands, and then one of the guests at the party is, of course, our audience surrogate character, whose name I've forgotten. <laughs> and they, they shake hands, and then it sort of... The, the camera goes up to an American flag because, uh-huh. folks, the movie's about Amer- America. What a concept. <laughs> and it fades out and, you know, the credits play to various... You various know, swelling, American emotive, American you know, music. And uh, I, I think what it's trying to communicate is you can't fight City Hall. Uh, the House always wins. But, you know, what you can do is not be in the campaign, You, you but you can still vote for them from afar. <laughs> And you can know that they might be a bit phony. And that's that's the limits of the political imagination. It's it's so it's such a it's such a chicken shit conclusion. Just the implication is exactly what uh, Nathaniel Friedman says in his in his Baffler article that I read from earlier. It's like, well, uh, America, she's not perfect. Politics, it's a it's a dirty game, folks. And maybe some of us we can't directly involve ourselves in that, but in its imperfection, isn't it actually kind of beautiful? Yeah. You know, it's still our shining city on a hill. Yeah. You know, you put it that way and, you know, I kind of <laughs> like the sound of it. <laughs> and I don't have to tell you how hard it is to be looking for work. Hey, I don't have to tell you anything about hard times. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. <laughs> I know. No politician can reopen this factory or bring back the shipyard jobs or make your union strong again. No politician can make it be the way it used to be because we're living in a new world now, a world without economic borders. A guy can push a button in New York and move a billion dollars to Tokyo in the blink of an eye. And in that world, muscle jobs go where muscle labor is cheap, and that is not here. So if you want to compete, you're going to have to exercise a different set of muscles, the one between your ears. Well, Luke, I guess this was the last podcast with me as a 20-something. <laughs> our first of 2019 and, and uh, our last in, in your 20s. The beginning of something, the end of something. <laughs> what is there even to say? What a concept. 30 years old. So once again, everyone, Happy New Year. 2018 was uh, the year we decided, I guess it's been about six or seven months since we decided to uh, do a Patreon and do two extra episodes a month. It is that time of the month again, so Patreon, because of its kind of annoying payment system, uh, we see has booted some of you off. If you're a patron and you're having problems, uh, DM us, we'll try to sort it out. If you enjoy the regular episodes and you're not on uh, Patreon, Give us a try. Yeah, you'll be able to learn who Wet Movie is and Cool Duder <laughs> and Bauer and the gang. You'll be able to listen to us talk about uh, Rat Race and do an entire episode with a Smash Mouth album playing in the background. <laughs> a middlingly successful experiment, in my opinion. You know, I have to say, maybe our worst episode. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was going to be our worst episode, and that was kind of the point. Because in its but imperfection, it's, it's the wasn't it kind of beautiful? <laughs> well, it was authentic, for sure. There's no doubt about that. Also, you know, something I want to address, uh, it, it's 2019 now, and it's time for the primaries. And is it going to be Beto? Is it going to be Biden? Is it going to be... John Kerry, Al Gore. John Kerry. Is going to be Kamala Harris. All I know is that despite the uh, insanity of the last two years uh, with, uh, as I call him, Comrade Trump in the White House, <laughs> democracy in the USA is still going 
and uh, I forget the lyrics to the song go- by Leonard Cohen go. It's uh, coming democracy through. is coming in the USA. And uh, Now watch this drive. <laughs> when you trust someone and then you say he lied you believe Miss Jennifer Flowers and you claim that I am not qualified because I worked that booty for hours. I'm not a draft dodger, no, not like them for quail. No, don't believe the thing that they say. I'm not an adulterer, and I did not inhale. So vote for me on election day. Get up off my back. Get off. He's called, so don't try to step to him, Bush or Rothbaro, because he just wants to lead the nation. Hmm, maybe he could even stop inflation. The nation will have a celebration. His economic policy will save the economy. Coming straight from the PC policy. Yeah, we in the White House. You kick it. Get up off my case. No one's in my face. Ain't nobody lumping around. I'm a good boy. I don't want no more to shout. I don't want no more Bush. 